Before we get started, let me just draw your attention to one item in the worship folder that I wanted to take an opportunity to talk to you about for a few minutes. If you turn to the heading that says, Upcoming Empowered Conference, please do that. Dates are January the 11th, 12th, and 13th, Friday night at 7, Saturday, a part of Saturday, and then Sunday morning for our service. Here's what that is. It's related to our third statement up here on the wall, vision statement that, I know this might sound silly, but blood, sweat, and tears went into those nine words and seeking God and fasting and praying over a couple of years, trying to really get God's heart for this body, praying with leadership. And that three-phased aspect of the mission that we're called to, saving the lost, growing the found, and then sending the empowered. This empowered conference is to help us grapple with the reality of that statement. You see, there are a couple of cardinal truths that uh, myself and the team that is helping here at this church put this conference on that we want uh, to transmit to you through this conference. And that is as follows. Number one, that everything is about the glory of God. Everything is about the glory of God. That is the purpose for this universe. That's the purpose for your life. We are to be living for the glory of God. And one of the central key ways that we do that is that we as followers of Christ become a part of the empowered that are sent out to take the message of Jesus Christ to the world. And that calling, that commissioning by Christ for believers to do that is not to an exclusive few. It is a universal commissioning. It is the responsibility for every single follower of Christ to be in the process of making disciples as they go about life. And so what we're going to do at this Empower Conference, we've got some speakers lined up. Actually, let me just show you a connection here. Very last page of your worship folder is a page that highlights some of the ministries, uh, missions ministries that we support. And three of the individuals on that list are going to be speaking at the conference. Hailing from ministry in Asia and South America and the Middle East uh, from Turkey. I mean, that is a godless godless place. See, one of the things that I believe will happen in helping us to see that everything is about the glory of God is to hear from people that see some radically different things than us because of places where God has sent them and things that God has done in and around them. So I encourage you to be a, a part of that. It's no fee to that conference. It's free. Child care is provided. You can register online, but Glad somebody pointed this out to me after the first service. Please don't register at AK Cornstone. Register at AK Cornerstone. That'd be better. There's a little typo in the bulletin there. I don't think you'll be able to find the conference at AK Cornerstone, but hopefully you can at AK Cornerstone. Come and be a part of that. I'd encourage life groups, life groups to come as a group together. Make that a group function. Love to see several hundred people here. Romans chapter 8. Please open up to Romans chapter 8. Our subject matter this morning, where we've come to in the letter, is we're going to focus on verses 9 and 10 and 11 today. But what I want to do before we get there, I feel impressed, compelled to do this. I want to just take a minute, a couple of minutes to 
review, highlight verses 1 to 8, because in doing so, getting that clear again, fresh in our mind, the logical development of profound truth that Paul is unpacking here, it will really help us to get the fullest and deepest understanding of verses 9 and 10 uh, that we're going to hit hard. So let's, let's just look at a quick overview of the first eight verses. Chapter that I believe is the greatest chapters ever penned. In verse 1, <clears throat> Paul begins in Romans 8 by setting forth a propositional truth, a great propositional truth. And that propositional truth that he states is the theme of the entire chapter. He opens it, verse 1, stating it, and then for the next 38 verses, he unpacks it, he expounds upon it, he validates it, he proves the veracity of it for the rest of the chapter. Here it is. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The great truth, amen, the great truth is that the condemnation of God ends completely, entirely, never again to return to the person that is saved, that through faith in Christ is placed in Christ. Then he's going to expound upon that. Verse 2. The reason that there is no condemnation in Christ is because the person that is in Christ is no longer under, quote, the law of sin and death. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. See, we know longer at the moment of salvation, we are taken out of the realm in which we existed prior to salvation. We are taken out of the realm where sin reigns in death. That realm of bondage and oppression and hopelessness, that is no longer the reality for those that are in Christ. The law that reigns in death is no longer a law that applies to them. Verses 3 and 4 tells us, Paul tells us here, what was done to make it possible for us to be taken out of the realm where sin reigns in death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Because of what God has done, all based on the person, the work, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we can be taken out of the realm of the law of sin and death. And not only can we be taken out of it, but the end of verse 4 there says that now that we're out of it in this new realm, that we can actually now live life in a way that fulfills the law's righteous requirement. That was never true before. Then in verses 5 through 8, what Paul does is that having stated those great truths, he then held up a vivid contrast between the life of an unbeliever, an unsaved, and the life of a saved person. He paints these two pictures and holds them up for us so that we can see here is what is true of, and this is critical, every single unbeliever, And here is what is true of every single believer. And he holds this contrast up. Then he comes to verse 9. That's where we're going to pick up the text today. And what he does in verse 9 is that he takes these great, sweeping, general truths about Christianity 
And he brings them right to the door of the Roman Christian. And he says, now, I'm not going to talk in general terms. I'm going to talk to you specifically about you. And what I want to do by the time we get to the end of this message today is I want to do the same thing because this is certainly not written just for the Roman Christians, the Roman church. It's written for you and me right here today. Let's read verses 9, 10, and 11. Paul writes, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So let's zero in for a few minutes on verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. I want to just point out two things that are immediately established stated unarguably so in, these, in this verse right here from Paul. He says this, number one, that the gift of the Spirit, the initial blessing of the gift of the Spirit is received, is given, is true of every single believer in Jesus Christ. Everyone that is truly saved. It happens at the moment of salvation and it is a universal reality for every single believer. He says it on the positive side and he says it on the negative side. He says if you're in the spirit you can't be in the flesh. If you're in the flesh, you can't be in the Spirit. And if the Spirit of God dwells in you, here's what it means. You're in the Spirit. And therefore, by virtue of that, you're not in the flesh. Then he says on the negative side, just really unequivocally, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ Dwelling in you, you are not a child of God. You do not belong to him. So I just want us to see this great central truth that Paul is driving home here. And that is that every single Christian has the spirit of Christ dwelling in their life. It is like a synonymous statement with being a Christian. A Christian is someone who has the Spirit of Christ dwelling in them. Or a person that has the Spirit of Christ dwelling in them is a Christian. You cannot separate the two. It's a universal truth for every true believer. And then notice that there are some terms that are used interchangeably here. I just want to state this because it can get a little confusing uh, on the surface. He talks about the Spirit. He talks about the Spirit of God. He talks about the Spirit of Christ. But he uses those terms completely interchangeably. In other words, they mean the same thing. That all of them are pointing to, are referring to the person of the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, part of the Godhead. And this is not the only place in Scripture where those terms are used interchangeably for the Holy Spirit. 
But here he's called the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. Just realize it's interchangeable terms referring to the same person, the same reality. So once he has established here in verse 9 this central truth that every single follower of Christ has the Spirit of God dwelling in them if they're truly saved, and if they don't have the Spirit of God dwelling in them, they're not a Christian. Once he's established that, then he continues in verses 10 and on to identify the significant consequences of the Spirit of God dwelling in a believer. So let's look at verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So what's the result of the Spirit of God dwelling within the believer? What is true of every believer? What does he say here is true of every single believer in which the Spirit of God dwells? He says this, that the body is dead. That the body is dead. And that the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Do you see the contrast here? Paul, in verse 10, makes a contrast. Not between two different people. He makes a contrast in the life of the believer. And he says, let me give you what seems to be a very contrasting truth in the life of the believer. Number one, their body is dead because of sin. Number two, their spirit is life because of righteousness. Contrasting truth about the same person, the believer. True of every believer, every true believer, their body is dead because of sin, their spirit is life because of righteousness. So let's kind of dive into these phrases now because first of all, what we must do to order to, for proper interpretation and application, we've got to understand what's being said here. So what is the body? The body. Greek word here is soma. And the word that is used is very similar to how we would talk about our bodies. Flesh and blown, blood. This tangible thing, the, the vehicle through which our personality expresses itself. Includes our thought processes, our mind. That's a, that's a real thing in our body. Our mind that reasons and thinks and determines. That's the body that Paul is referring to. And what does he say about that body? That it's what? It's dead. That that body is dead. I want to look closely at that phrase. Because that can look pretty confusing on the surface, can it? I mean, here I am. I'm up here. I'm preaching this truth. And I'm not dead. My body is not dead. How can this be a reality? How can every believer be existing though their body is dead? See, the word here, the understanding here, we could put in almost the word moral for body, meaning this, or mortal, I should say, mortal. That our physical body, this soma, this flesh and blood and bones and mind, that it is existing with the principle of death within it. That my body has the seed of death. That my body is corrupt and is in the process of decay. We are made up of our being. We're made up of three things, body, soul or mind and spirit body soul or mind and spirit 
And this thing called our body, the vehicle through which we express and relate, it is a mortal body that has within it the seed of death. And it is a body then that is decaying. You know, when God created Adam and Eve in the garden, he created them righteous, sinless, without the seed of decay. But when sin came, the process of decay begin in the body and then through procreation Adam who then had a corrupted nature because of his sin no longer righteous but now unrighteous corrupt depraved with a mortal body he passed that on to us and to all of his subsequent subsequent posterity that's you and me so that we enter into this world when our life is conceived Right from that moment, the principle of death is operating. One expositor who is also a medical doctor, really a genius, said it like this, that our very first breath is the very first of our last breaths. Because the process of decay is a part of our being from the moment of conception. And we are, even though the child is growing and developing, that process of decay is working toward an end. And that end is death. So what is true of every believer? On this planet right now, they are existing with a mortal body, a body that has the seed of death in it that is in the process of decay. Basically, they are a living death in that body. And then Paul goes on to say that the body is dead because of. The body is dead because of sin. I'll talk to you about this more in a minute, but let me just give you the cliff note story here. The power of sin is death. And when Adam sinned, when Adam sinned, he brought sin into the world. And with sin came death. And that death spread to all men because all men then became sinners. And that is the law of sin and death. So that our physical body, though we have been delivered from that law of sin and death spiritually, we still have this one aspect of our being, this soma, this body. You see, Jesus Christ came to completely eradicate the effects of the fall, to defeat the devil's work that took place through sin. And at the moment of salvation, the moment of justification for, for us spiritually and in our souls, that takes place totally and completely. We exit this realm and enter into a new spiritual realm so that we're no longer in the realm of sin and death, but there's one fragment of our being, this soma, this body, that has not yet been redeemed that is waiting for the final day where the final aspect of our redemption will take place. This body in which sin still dwells, that is still prone to sin, that is weak and frail and corrupt and mortal and decaying, that has the seed of death, it will be transformed and become incorruptible on the great and final day. But for now, we're in this body that is dead because of sin. Then second part of the statement is this. The spirit is life because of righteousness. First of all, the spirit is life. The spirit is kind of a strange way to say it. What does that mean? The spirit is life. 
Remember, this is a contrast here between a believer's physical body that is dead and a believer's spirit that is alive. The spirit is life. That's true of every single believer. So that here is what takes place at salvation. At the moment that you place your faith in Jesus Christ, there's a theological thing that takes place. The word that we use is regeneration. That in the process of salvation, the Spirit of God regenerates us. It's a new birth. He takes us from a place of death and He gives us spiritual life. We were dead spiritually. He makes us alive spiritually so that we can see and understand the truth the truth about ourselves and our sin, the truth about Christ and His work as Savior so that we can believe and that God can make us a brand new person, give us a brand new life. That new life called regeneration, that's what Paul is talking about here. The Spirit is life. Let me just try to illustrate it with this. John chapter 11. Jesus is standing outside the tomb of Lazarus. Talking to Mary and Martha. He makes this great statement about himself. Verses 25 and 26. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Look closely at the first statement and at the last statement. First statement is this. Jesus said, That he is, quote, the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. The spirit of Christ that is dwelling in the believer, in every believer, is life. And what the spirit of Christ, who is the life, comes in to dwell within the believer, he gives that believer spiritual life. I mean, that's just logical sense. Then the last statement identifies the result of the life of the Spirit dwelling in the believer. Everyone who lives and believes in me, Jesus said, shall never die. Now, has anyone since the time that Jesus stood there, well, let's let's take Lazarus. Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb. He was dead. He said, Lazarus, come forth, four days old, dead. He comes out of the tomb. Jesus says, unwrap him. Did Lazarus ever die again? Yeah, he died. So what does Jesus mean? He who believes, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Well, obviously, Lazarus believed in Jesus. He crossed death and was called back. You see, The truth Paul is getting at here is that if you are a believer, you're alive right now, and you're a believer in Christ, you will never die, meaning death no longer has any sway over you. Oh, you're going to step through a doorway called physical death in which this mortal body, this decaying body, is going to go to the final stage of its decay, but you're going to step through that in victory. Death has no power over you. It's going to actually become the vehicle, the doorway through which you leap into real, eternal life. I mean, you have it now if you're a believer, but you're going to have it in a whole new dimension when you step over the threshold of death so that you really are not ever going to experience death because the seed of life is in every believer just like the seed of death is in every unbeliever. The Spirit is life. So here's the reality of the Christian to this point. The Christian's body, physical body, the soma, is dead because of sin. But the Spirit of the believer is alive because of righteousness. Let's focus in on that 
last part of that statement, those three words, because of righteousness. What does that mean? Well, let me tell you, first of all, what it doesn't mean. Paul is not saying that because of your inherent righteousness, you get life. I mean, that is, that is absolutely in the face of everything that he has said up to this point in the letter and everything that the New Testament says from beginning to end. Certainly, he's not talking about man's right. Man doesn't have any righteousness in themselves. They are totally depraved, unrighteous, wicked. The intention of the sinful human heart is only evil all the time. That's the commentary of Scripture. So what does the statement mean? That the Spirit is life because of righteousness. There's only one possible meaning, and it's this. It could be expanded, expounded as follows. The spirit is alive. The spirit of the believer is alive because the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been imputed to the believer. That word imputed means that the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been placed to the account of that God has made a determination at the moment that you placed your faith in Christ and Christ alone, what he did through his death and resurrection, that God made a declaration that you are justified. And in that moment, he imputed to you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. God did that. Not anything to do with any righteousness that you have. Nothing to God do you bring. Only to the cross must you cling. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that Paul has in mind when he shows this contrast and he says the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, let me show you the parallel. This will prove this, I believe, with beyond any shadow of a doubt that that is the righteousness that Paul is talking about. And I need to show you the previous context to illustrate it. Romans chapter 5. I'll try to do this very quickly. But it it is profound in my mind. It is just an incredible development of thought here. And I want you to remember that as we have progressed through this, if you've been here, if you haven't, I think uh, you'll at at least understand this, that the unfolding of this letter is as follows. Paul gets to chapter five. He's been writing about a theme of righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And he gets to the end of chapter five and then he pauses and he gives two parenthetical statements. One is the content of chapter 6. The second is the content of chapter 7. Because there were misunderstandings when people heard his free gospel of grace, they were perverting it. And so he, having stated it up to the end of chapter 5, then in chapter 6, he speaks to those who say, man, if grace is free and it's ours even in the midst of sin, then man, let's go sin some more and advance grace. He writes chapter 6 to refute that heresy. And then in chapter 7, he explains the relationship of the law of God to the believer. So that when he comes back to chapter 8, where is he picking up from? Chapter 5. Chapter 5 flows right into chapter 8. And guess what the last half of chapter 5 is? He gives a contrast of two men, Adam and Christ, verses 12 to 21. Let me show you what he says, first of all, about Adam. He says, through Adam, our first parent, sin came into the world, verse 12. And with sin came death, verse 12. And with death and sin came our condemnation from God, verse 18. Adam was created in righteousness, 
ruined and corrupted through his own sin, passed that corrupt nature onto us so that every one of us, from the moment that we are born, we were born with a sinful nature, and because of that, all of us sin. Verse 12 of chapter 5. But Paul's chief point in illustrating Adam was not to illustrate Adam. It was so that he could highlight the truth that he begins in verse 14 of chapter 5. Adam was a type of the one to come. So that he can use that to point to Jesus Christ and say, now that I've set the stage with Adam, let me show you the parallel between this first man, Adam, and the second man, Jesus Christ. The first representative of humanity, Adam, and the second representative of humanity to all who put their faith in him, Jesus Christ. Watch the parallel. Through one man, Adam, death came to mankind, but through one man, Jesus Christ, grace abounds to mankind. Verse 15, Adam's one sin brought condemnation for all men. Christ's one act of righteousness, his death and resurrection leads to justification for all men. Verse 18, through Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Through Christ's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Verse 19, Finally, through Adam's sin reigned in death. Through Jesus Christ, grace reigns through righteousness unto eternal life. Verse 21. You see the connection that he makes there? So here it is in a nutshell. The parallel between Adam and Christ. Adam, his sin, our death. Christ, his righteousness, our eternal life. That's the parallel. Now come again, chapter 5 ends, we're in chapter 8, and just 8 verses down, listen to what Paul says, and tell me if you hear Romans chapter 5, 12 to 21, now in Romans 8, verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. That is a commentary on the last half of Romans chapter 5. Because of Adam's sin, the body is dead. But because of Jesus Christ, your spirit is alive. That is the only way to interpret that phrase, because of righteousness. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ and what he did that makes life possible. That makes life a reality for all who believe and that makes life eternal and secure. Now let me remind you again that Romans chapter 8 is all about one great truth. The great truth of the security of of the believer, that there is therefore now no condemnation for everyone in Jesus Christ, nor will there ever be forevermore. That's the truth that he is going to continue to expound and look at how he does that right here in those three beautiful words, because of righteousness. To me, those three words are exquisitely beautiful in the extreme Because what that is saying, as I just showed you, is that it's referring to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Listen, what can foster your hope more than the righteousness of Jesus Christ? What can engender the security of your salvation more than the righteousness of Jesus Christ? If your salvation is built upon and only upon and completely upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Righteousness that is absolutely perfect. Righteousness that is fully sufficient. Righteousness that is the exact requirement of God. If that is what your salvation is built and secured within and anchored on, how secure is it? It's unchangeable. It's undefeatable. It's unalterable. 
It's unmovable. It's unshakable. The righteousness of Christ cannot be defeated. And what the righteousness of Christ brings is an eternal victory of life for us because if it's if our life is grounded on his righteousness, nothing is going to shake it. Nothing is going to change it. Nothing is going to take it away from us. It's the very righteousness of the sovereign, all-powerful God of the universe. And it's that solid for us. Do you see how Paul is just continually driving the truth of now no condemnation? Not now, not ever, for every single true believer. It is as fixed and secure as the very person of God. How fixed and secure and eternal is the person of God? I mean, we can't even really express the answer to that, can we? We just know he is. He is the great I am and will always be the great I am. And our righteousness is grounded upon the very God righteousness of the Holy Son of God. Oh, what that does to give me confidence about the security, the final and complete security of my salvation because it's not built at all upon anything that I do. How do we know? How do we know that Jesus' righteousness was fully sufficient to save us. There is one great answer to that. It's the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the exclamation of the Father saying, I accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for sin. If God didn't accept it, Jesus would still be in the grave. If Jesus' righteousness was not quite good enough, if it was 99.9% good enough, but just one fraction short of being good enough, he'd still be in the grave needing to pay his own death for his own unrighteousness. But when God the Father called the Son out of the tomb, what he shouted down through history is that the sacrificial death of Christ is the fully sufficient paid redemption price for mankind's sin. It's the proof that God accepted the sacrifice. So again, that gives me confidence to know that my righteousness, which is Christ's righteousness imputed to me is secure. It's as secure for me as it is for him. Why? Because I'm in him. Can any being in the universe take away Christ's righteousness from him? Is that possible? He's all powerful. And if I'm in him and Christ's righteousness is imputed to me and to you, can any being in the universe take away your righteousness? Two points of application. The first is related to The fact that we still have the soma, the body of sin as believers. What do we do with an application based upon that truth that Paul has given to us here? I want to give you what I believe is a truth about that. Brief explanation why. And here's the title of it. The ongoing intensifying battle with sin. I believe that the believer, that the reality of the believer's life is this, that he is in an ongoing, intensifying battle with sin. I would say, I believe that is true 
of my life without question that as I've grown and matured in my Christian life, I haven't left the battle with sin behind. It's gotten more intense. It's gotten hotter. Now, let me try to give you some illustrations why I believe that that's true by painting a few pictures here. As you grow in your Christian life, as you progress in Christ-likeness, who do you get closer to? Should be a pretty simple answer. As you progress in Christ-likeness, who do you get closer to? Christ. Is Christ on the front line of the battle or is he hanging out behind the troops? He's on the front line. The closer you get to Christ, the closer you get to the front line where the battle is the most intense. So you say, well, man, I'm going to hang out way in the back. Then I want to stay as far away from the front line. That's not a good idea. That's not a good idea tell you why no safer place than you can be than right behind the victor than right behind the inconquerable Lord Jesus Christ than right behind the one who died but is alive again and holds the keys of death and hell right behind the one who is the alpha and the omega He is the great victor, and the closer you get to him, the better place that you are in. There's another truth, though. The closer you get to the front line, who else is hanging out around the front line? The veterans, the seasoned warriors, those who understand the battle and those who will watch your back for you those who are experienced in the warfare to fight your battles with you. But if you hang back and get isolated and lag behind, that's when you are in a dangerous place. So I believe the Christian life is an intensifying battle with sin. That certainly was true of the three-year ministry of the life of Christ, wasn't it? So, if that is the case, first point of application then, if you're a believer, is that you need to get up every morning and get ready for the battle. Be prepared to enter into the fray. And the best way for you to fight in victory is to get as close to Jesus every day as you can. To be in his word, to be in prayer, to be in deep relationship with other believers who are walking and fighting the same direction. Here's the second point of application. I hope I can explain this, reason this out so that it's understandable. It's unquestionable that the great truth of verse 9, verse 10, is that every believer has the indwelling presence of the Spirit or the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Christ in them. That is the... That is the distinguishing mark of every true believer. And person that does not have the Spirit of God dwelling in them, though they may profess Christianity, they're charlatans. They are not truly saved. So that's clearly the central truth that Paul drives home. But now let's take that to a point of application. If Paul's goal is to develop in the heart of his readers, us, followers of Christ, a conviction of our own security in our salvation, if that's what chapter 8 is all about, that we would be absolutely convinced of our own eternal, final, and full, complete salvation, and that if the Spirit of God is the hallmark proof that we are, in fact, 
saved. Doesn't it make logical truth then that we should be able to recognize and identify some aspects, some telltale signs that the Spirit of God does in fact dwell in us? I mean, if Paul's purpose is to develop and undergird our security, then what he's going to want to do is point out something that we'll be able to see and understand and say, okay, I've got it. I understand it. I'm grasping more and more the depth of my security as a believer. And so that is what he's doing here with the Spirit. He is saying that if you have the Spirit of Christ, then you have got to understand that your salvation is full and final. So what you need to know is, do you have the Spirit? And he wouldn't be holding that up as the hallmark truth of every believer if there was no way to know that. If it was like flipping a coin, do I have the Spirit? Uh, yeah, uh, no. No, there must be some identifiable Aspects, signs in me that I, in fact, have the Spirit of Christ. I'm going to give you three as we close. And the three that I'm going to give you are universal, meaning just like what Paul's been saying about the Christian and the non-Christian being true of every Christian and every non-Christian. These three aspects of the Spirit's work is true in every believer's life. If you have the Spirit of God, these three things have been a part of the Spirit's work and is continuing to be a part of the Spirit's work in you. Number one, He convinces you of sin. The Holy Spirit, in His preparatory work towards your salvation, He convinces you of your sin. Does that make sense? You have to know that you need a Savior before you'll accept one. And so he shows you your sin. And it's a front to a holy God. Not just that sin is existing in you, but he shows you the extent of your sin. The depths of your sin. It's part of the work of the Spirit. Jesus said, when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin. As a Blanket statement he made about the work of the Spirit of God. So he not only shows us that sin exists there in us as unsaved, but that sin is deeply rooted. And I don't just mean when you commit a flagrant sin that the world would say, oh my, that then he convicts you deeply. No, What I'm talking about here is he convicts you deeply about the corruptness of your nature. The corruptness of your heart. How desperately wicked you really are. So that his goal in doing that is not to make you feel bad. No, salvation is in mind. But he does that so that he can bring you down low in the dust. I'd get on my knees if my knees didn't hurt so bad right now. He bring you down low in the dust, humble you so that you can then in that darkness and the realization of your blackness, he can do the second thing. And here's the second universal work. He shows you Jesus. He comes to you in your darkness and he shows you the light of Christ. Jesus said, when the spirit of God comes, he'll do this. He'll testify of me. He'll reveal me. So what the Spirit of God does is that he brings to that recognized penitent sinner the fact that Jesus Christ is the very Son of God, fully God, fully man, who lived a perfect life, went to the cross by design so that he could die for your sin, three days later rose again just like he said that he would and is now offering salvation to you if you'll put your faith in him and him alone. Spirit of God is wanting to teach you that right there. And once you've embraced that and accepted Christ as your Savior, then his ongoing work is to lean you further into Jesus and cause Jesus to become even more and more your hero and exalt him in every one of your thoughts and desires. 
And then thirdly, and the second one flows right into this, the universal work of the Spirit in every follower of Christ is that He, through His power, is working in you to progress you further and further into deeper and deeper surrender to Jesus. That is what He's doing. He's wanting to develop in you deeper and deeper surrender to Jesus. So here's the great point of application then. Remember what Paul did in verse 9? He took the general truths (coughs) of the first eight verses and then in verse 9, he came right to the Roman Christian and he said, now I'm going to talk to you specifically about you. Cornerstone Church, now I want to talk to you specifically about you. If the Spirit of God dwells in every believer, if that is the hallmark reality of the believer's existence, truth of their salvation verified in that fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And if the Spirit of God and His universal work in every believer is to convince of sin, to point out Christ to the point of accepting Him in salvation and to move you and lean you into deeper and deeper surrender to Christ, then all here's what you need to do to test your own salvation. You need to ask yourself the question, is that true of me? When I look at my own life, do I see that in me? Do I see deep penitence over sin, number one? Do I recognize my own total brokenness? Number two, is Christ everything to me? Is the fame of Christ getting brighter and brighter in my heart? I promise you, if you have the Spirit of God, that is what the Spirit is working at in your life. I don't mean that you've got that (coughs) perfectly figured out, but you're moving there. And then number three, The complementary work to that is that as the fame of Christ grows in your life, that your commitment to live for Him gets deeper, that your will is aligned more and more to the reality of who He is in His Lordship. Again, not that you're doing it perfectly, but you are moving down the road. So that we can then conclude it with this. If I see those things in me, then here's what I know. The Spirit of God dwells in me. And if the Spirit of God dwells in me as evidenced by those works of the Spirit, then here's what else I know. There is therefore now no condemnation for me. Not now, not tomorrow, not ever throughout all eternity. And then here is the complimentary sobering truth. If you don't see those things in you, if there is no evidence of the convincing of sin of the exaltation of Christ and of deeper surrender, then you are not saved. Because you don't have the Spirit of Christ. And if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you do not belong to Christ. But if that's your reality, if that's become, if you've realized that this morning, you don't have to leave here like that. 
No. The Spirit of Christ is right here, right now. And guess what He's doing? He's convincing of sin. He is exalting Christ, drawing you to Him so that you will surrender. That's what He's doing right here, right now, if you're not saved. And that work is an invitation for you to receive it. To in penitence, in humility, in brokenness before God because of your sin, cry out to the Savior who wants to save you. And he will. And you can leave here with a growing security of your full, complete, final, forever salvation. Would you please stand? Let's pray. Father.